Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 2 through 22. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, for I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The word of the Lord. A few years ago, there was a heartwarming story that emerged where 24-year-old Carson King went viral at a college football game for holding up a humorous sign asking for beer money. Like most viral things, this took on a life of its own, and this young man ended up raising over a million dollars for what was initially his so-called beer money and giving it to a children's hospital. Yet as nice as this sounds, King had a dark secret. A liberal reporter sifting through his Twitter account discovered that when King was 16 years old, he made two racist comments. He was exposed, and the sponsors around his charity quickly canceled their involvement. But the reporter who had investigated King had a dark secret as well. As news of King's old tweets were unearthed, outraged conservatives searched the reporter's Twitter account and found some old but also very problematic tweets. The reporter was exposed, harassed online, and fired from his job. If there ever was a great bipartisan example of why cancel culture is toxic, this may be it. 
For the last few weeks since Easter, we have been mentioning that in ancient Judaism, there was a difference between being considered unclean and being considered sinful. To be considered unclean was originally meant that you just somehow had had contact with something that was connected to disease, blood, or death. And accordingly, you took time out from social contact. However, it had nothing to do with your moral condition. It just served two purposes. One, as a practical way to decrease transmission of infections and diseases. And two, as a practice of spiritual formation to remind people that disease and blood, like those things, sin is also connected to death. And therefore, God is against sin because it too can lead to death. But the unclean encounter itself was never sinful. It was not unjustifiable harm. It was just a reminder about the connection between sin and death. But over time, this clear distinction between what was unclean and what was sinful, what was ritual purity and what was moral purity began to blur. For example, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus in chapter 15, we witness Jesus rebuke the religious leaders who criticize his disciples for not washing their hands. A violation of ritual purity, but treating them like they had committed a moral impurity. Jesus dismisses ritual purity, impurity altogether, and holds up moral impurity, particularly one's internal motivations, as the true measure of whether an action is clean or unclean. But one of the reasons that Jesus needed to do that was because of how much anxiety existed in a culture where your reputation could be called into question by just about anyone and for reasons that were probably hard to even keep track of. It could be a moral reason, an accusation of violating an obscure but legitimate moral law, or it could be a reason of ritual uncleanliness, which wasn't actually sinful, but could be used to insinuate that you are. If people thought you were sinful, well, that was just as bad as being sinful, maybe worse. And the result was social isolation, Harassment, exclusion, you were canceled. You can only imagine then the level of hypervigilance, if not outright paranoia, that this could create. And can you imagine how bad the religious Karens were then? Which, by the way, Karen is a Hebrew name, so this historically could be plausible, maybe. But really, this would have led a lot of people to pointing out all the shortcomings that they perceived in others, all the while trying to hide the dark secrets that they knew if they were ever exposed, they too could experience the same kind of cancellation from their equally religious neighbors. And so it is into this kind of social anxiety that our likely author, Apollo, speaks today. Let's pick up where we left off last week, chapter 10, verse 2. If sacrifices cleansed once and for all, worshipers would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of their sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Last week we ended with these verses that demonstrated two things. First, blood sacrifices don't resolve our anxiety about whether we are truly forgiven by God or not. In fact, because of their ritualistic nature, says Apollos, they may actually increase our anxiety around sin. Why? Because they're constantly a reminder that we are trying to do something to address the problem, but it's not exactly working out the way we hoped. Maybe you've tried or felt something similar before. You know you haven't always been a good person. I don't think that's hard for any of us to admit here. Maybe you realize that you've been complicit in systemic injustice or racism, and, and you want to change that. You want instead to contribute to justice. You want to be a good person, and so you make the attempt you, you do religious things like reading your Bible, or you perhaps try to reduce your carbon footprint, or perhaps maybe you do political activism like Kendall Jenner, or maybe, some of you have seen this commercial, it's terrible, or maybe you just tweet into the endless void of the internet. But the more you sacrifice, the more it seems like it's a reminder that it's really hard to be a good person. It's really hard to live the completely unproblematic life. Perhaps even impossible. Your intentions are good, noble even, but it's done very little to assuage your sense of anxious guilt. You see, we may not have blood sacrifices anymore to ease our sense of discomfort with our moral sense of self. But in our modern world, we are still trying with an ever-increasing list of potential cures. But Apollo shows us today, just as it was then, that the sacrifices of people will never be effective temporarily or partially in forgiving sins, either objectively before God or even subjectively before my own conscience and the views of those around me. Now, Apollos is going to weave this hard truth with one other implication that this also meant that Jesus' death on the cross was not a blood sacrifice either, for this also would be ineffective. The blood of animals doesn't work this way, so the blood of Jesus won't work this way either. Apollos does call Jesus the perfect sacrifice, but he alludes that Jesus is a different kind of sacrifice. What could that be like? Well, let's look at verse 5. Therefore... When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though you through they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. Now notice how Jesus Christ explains how he is a different kind of sacrifice. Instead of being a burnt offering or a sin offering that's just killed and offered up, God the Son says to God the Father, a body you prepared for me. 
A body not just to die, but to do what? To do God's will. How was Jesus the perfect sacrifice? It wasn't just his death. It was his life. It was living the truly good life. One of perfect love for the Father and perfect love for people. Jesus embodies God's will perfectly, sinlessly, in life, into death, so that Jesus' perfect, sinless life actually undoes death itself. In the resurrection, Jesus begins a grand reversal of the effects of sin. Now granted, this is a big claim. But Apollos is going to go back to the Jewish scriptures to show that this has been predicted for a millennia. Let's look at verse 11. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, today when we work, we tend to do it sitting down, right? Unless you have like one of those weird like standing work desks. I thought, always thought those were really like uncomfortable looking. Like just give me lumbar support and I would be good, right? But in the ancient world, work was almost always done standing up. And so when Apollo says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, it means Jesus has rested from his finished work. In fact, through the sheer perfection of Jesus' love that defeats death and reverses the effects of sin, this victory is so encompassing that in verse 13, Apollo links it to the messianic psalm about Jesus turning his enemies into a footstool. Now I'd be thinking, okay, well that doesn't sound very loving, so how does that work? The enemies being referred to here are not people. The enemies are ideologies, systems, economies, injustices, prejudices, even death itself. All of these, all of these effects of sin are now being undone by the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But not only is Christ's victory totally inevitable now, we now get to share in the perfection that Jesus has achieved. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now this feels like a little bit of an awkward phrase in our English-speaking mouths, but the NIV translation helps out here a little bit. And yet the, the Greek word for perfect is somewhat poetically in the perfect tense, which means that this is an action that is both completed and continuing. Okay, so what does that practically mean? When you place your trust in Jesus, Jesus' perfection is transferred to you. Spiritually speaking, you can know that God looks at you as if you have no sin. Now, of course, you still have sin that you are dealing with. This is why Apollo says you need to be made holy. That's the practical reality of faith. But in terms of how God objectively looks at you, the way God looks at Jesus is extended to you completely. And I know some of you might need to hear this this morning. God doesn't just view you as marginally 
better. All right? God doesn't just view you as like, oh, well, you're kind of a screw-up, but now i got to be nice to you. God doesn't just view you as having your slate partially, temporarily clean, but you better not screw up again. No. Because of Jesus, God views you with total, complete, and continuous approval. So what does all this mean for my conscience? What, what does this mean for that anxious guilt that seems to kind of follow me around? Let's go to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Yo, Apollos' understanding of the human conscience here is so perceptive. To know that Jesus' perfection, Jesus' sinlessness has been transferred to us in the eyes of God is the solution to the existential problem of a guilty conscience of our anxiety that others will deem me unworthy of love or that I will deem myself unworthy of love. Because when I know that the most objective arbiter of reality, God, says that I am forgiven, then I can know that I am forgiven. When God says that I am clean and pure, then I can know that I am clean and pure. When God says that I am morally good, then I can know that I am morally good. And the more I believe all of these things to be true, the less anxiety I will have. But this was also the cure to much of the religious cancel culture that existed in the first century. Think about it. So much of the hypervigilance around ritual and moral purity came from the fact that because I could never be assured of my own, sometimes the best moral defense was a moral offense. The insecurity in me would drive me to seek out and expose the moral impurity I could find in others. And of course, everyone else around me, because of their insecurity, is prompted to do the same thing. It's a vicious cycle. But a gospel-centered community ends that. Because if I'm assured of my goodness and worth in a powerful and permanent way, and my sibling in Christ is assured of their goodness and worth in a powerful, permanent way, then neither of us will be insecure. And if neither of us are insecure, then the temptation to expose others in order to protect myself evaporates. This is why Apollo says in verse 9 that Jesus sets aside the first to establish the second. The first is in reference to the religious system and all the anxiety that it produces. The second is in reference to the good news of the gospel and the assurance it produces. And by the way, the word translation here that says set aside is actually really weak. Apollos uses the strongest possible language. The word also means massacres, annihilates, utterly destroys. In other words, the gospel should utterly destroy religious finger pointing and the anxiety that motivates it. 
The solution today should be no different then as it was then. Not just for religion, but for our culture. You see, cancel culture is not limited to one ideology. If I'm here this morning and I just think the other side does it, then I've already drank my own particular brand of Kool-Aid. There are progressives who do it. There are conservatives who do it. So here's the thing. I know this might sound odd at first. Cancel culture is not a product of politics. I really don't think it is. That's just the dressing. Instead, when you look at modern cancel culture, you will notice that it has the same two features of high-control religion. One, there is an in-group tribal identity that I secure by being viewed as pure. Morally pure, ideologically pure, whatever the group really values. And two, everyone is anxious that someone might accuse them of being impure. Because once you're viewed as impure by a group, you're unclean. You're unworthy of acceptance and you will be cast from the group. So what do we see people doing today in order to protect themselves? Well, sometimes the best ideological defense is an ideological offense. The insecurity in me will drive me to seek out and expose whatever ideological impurity I can find in others. And of course, because everyone else around me is suffering from the same insecurity, they will be prompted to do the same thing. Sound familiar? It's what human nature has been suffering from for thousands of years. It's a vicious cycle. And it's the product of an anxious conscience. Now, it might be hard to change our current cancel culture, but this gospel can change how you engage with culture. Because I know for a lot of you here, you really want to make the world a better place. You care deeply about justice. You care about relieving suffering. But if I try to call out injustice and sin without first coming to terms with the sin and injustice in my own life, there will always be this gnawing insecurity, this toxic tension, this fear of exclusion from whatever other gatekeepers are around me. And not only that, my anxious conscience will inevitably sabotage my motivations. But once I can confess that my life is certainly problematic, but because of Jesus, I am also certainly worthy of love and acceptance, I can engage culture without the anxiety that I used to have. I am free to do good without it being a project to prove myself as good. I am free to do justice without it being a project to justify myself. Friends, hear this good news. The gospel is the fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah's promise, who Apollos quotes in verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, 
and I will write them on their minds, their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. Y'all, if you are a follower of Jesus, this covenant is your covenant. Because God, not dogmatic gatekeepers of religion, sovereignly forgives us of our sins, past and present, and because God's spirit, not the ideological gatekeepers of culture, sovereignly puts a new law of love into our hearts, we finally, finally have the solution to an anxious conscience. May you receive the full assurance that this kind of faith brings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
All right, Colin, we've got some questions. All right. Here's your, here's your throw. I get the other side today. Yeah. All right, mix it Switching up. Switching it up, you All know? Right. I'm trying something new. All right, does the idea of today's sermon connect with Matthew 7, 3 on removing our own flaws before worrying about the flaws of others? Also, let me just say, I really appreciate that person who didn't just say, does it connect with Matthew 7, 3, and then just like yeah. left it at that? Like, thank you for adding the extra part, because I would have been like, I don't know. Uh, yes, I think it does... I think it does a great job because in Matthew 7, 3, Jesus says, all right, hey, uh, maybe you should check the, the log in your own eye, right, before you call out the speck in someone else's, right? This idea of proportionality where everyone's finger pointing and it's like, dude, do you see the stuff going on in your own life? And so, yeah, I think that is actually a very applicable, practical message is that before we start calling out the stuff that we see in the world and in our, in, our, in our communities, right, it's really important to do a self-evaluation and a self-check about, like, to what ways am I also doing this in my own life? And it doesn't mean you can't call those things out still, right? You're never going to achieve a place of perfection, but it's a place of self-awareness that you start with and a place of, uh, I think, personal confection that then gives you kind of some freedom to engage the wider questions. And kind of a parlaying on that, is there a way to lovingly hold others and ourselves accountable? What should we hold each other accountable to? And is it even our job to do that? Oh, man. That, okay, those are so many great <laughs> yeah. questions. We might talk more about that on Monday. Yeah. Um, so uh, what's a loving way to do it? I think the best way, if you can, is within the context of relationship, right? Trying to call out a stranger doesn't usually go well, if you haven't noticed. Try doing it on the internet, it goes bad, right? So trying to do it within the context of relationship is going to be the best uh, way and a loving relationship. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about, to, like, to, what, what standard are we holding them to, right? Well, that depends on what standards y'all are operating on. So mm -hmm. hopefully, if you have a Christian dynamic, that's a pretty good standard to engage with, right? But you may be engaging with people who aren't Christian, so you might try to appeal to some mutual standard. That's usually, again, the best strategic way to go is something you both know that you already agree with and say, hey, we want to live like this. And is it even our job? No, sometimes it's not your job to call out every single thing that is wrong in the world or other people, right? But sometimes, again, this is where you have your personal self-reflection, like maybe God is calling you because you have special access to this person or a special connection to this situation that maybe you are called to speak in a way that might even be a little scary for you, but because you just feel like based on these circumstances, God is calling you in this unique way, and again, by doing the first two as well. Yeah, I've been there, and my always my initial thought is like, damn, <laughs> I have to do this. All right, final question. All right. What advice do you have to respond to cancel culture? Like, how should we respond when we feel it's directed at us? Yeah, um, I, I think it's sometimes the, the pendulum swing goes back and goes, well, I just don't care. No one can cancel me. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. and then, then you're, you're engaging in your own form of hubris and pride, right? So mm -hmm. I think when, when cancel culture starts to come for you in some way, again, you, you hold back with the grace and humility. You offer dialogue. You also mm -hmm. sometimes, cancel culture, culture feeds off uh, the conflict, and so yeah. if you don't engage in conflict, sometimes that also can help protect you. Mm -hmm. um, also, this is, this is a little more complicated, but sometimes it's also about creating relationships and networks um, where you are not beholden to the gatekeepers that may threaten to cancel you, right? So yeah. I've done a, a little bit of political engagement, right? And sometimes like, it's, it's about just building safe relationships, having real relationships, and also knowing that like, sometimes people will be like, whoa, we're going to cancel you. And you're like, I don't I don't care, like, right? Yeah. It doesn't really threaten me. So it's about being intentional in your relationships as well. Yeah, I was gonna, like, to piggyback on that, I think to go back to your first response, where 
circling back with the people that you are in relationship with if a stranger tries to cancel you and go to the people that really know you to make sure that like they hold you accountable and you are not who the stranger thinks you are. Yeah, that's good. I like that, Sam. Very nice. Cool. Well, guys, great questions. Send a few mm -hmm. more in. Uh, if you're watching later today, you can send them in later. Or if you're here and you're like, oh, wait, an hour later, I have a question. Send it in, and I'll get to it tomorrow uh, in the pastor's live stream. So yeah, and there already have been some that have come in during Q&A, so I'm excited for you to address those tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. All right, friends, now let us stand and join our voices together as we prepare for communion and sing the song too.